Oh, we are in John chapter 6, if you want to turn there in your device or in a real Bible, and stand with me as we pray together this morning. Father, it's good for us to be together this morning to study the scriptures, to give you the praise and worship that you are worth, that you are due. And we ask now by the governing power of your Holy Spirit and the instruction of the Bible that you would give us uh, the meat of the Word of God, that you would instruct us and teach us by the Holy Spirit, for we need to know more about your Word and know about your person and nature. So ask now, Lord, for each of us here that have come in a various state. Um, Some of us are very encouraged about our lives and the direction that our lives are headed. Uh, Others are just coasting and, and life isn't extremely eventful, maybe busy, but we're doing fine. And then other of us may be in a bad way. And Father, you know how to reach all of us in whatever condition we find ourselves in the soul this morning. And so I pray that your word would go out and that it would accomplish the purpose it sent forth and that you would give us clear understandings in our mind in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. And actually, you can have a seat. Um, I just figured after stand or sitting for a while, you'd like to stand up. Um, we're in John chapter 6. Uh, if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and turn there. John chapter 6. And we're going to be covering uh, verses 52 to 71. So we're going to finish the chapter today. Uh, we have actually been, this will be our fourth sermon in John chapter 6. So um, it's taken me a while to get through this. And this fourth sermon may be perhaps the hardest of all the sermons that I've had to preach out of John chapter 6 as we're in our Gospel of John series. Um, So for today, buckle up because this may be a little bit harder hitting the words of Jesus here this morning. But the chapter starts, as you might remember, with all the feels. I mean, things are going good in John chapter 6 at the beginning. Um, Jesus shows up and multiplies bread and feeds over 5,000 people. The, the scriptures tells us it was 5,000 men. That's not counting the women and the children. Most scholars think it was close to 20,000 people that Jesus fed from a little boy's lunch. A little lunchable got brought to him. You remember what happens? He multiplies it, feeds this massive crowd. And everybody thinks Jesus is awesome. They want to make him king. Their bellies are full. Things are going great and wonderful. But in the course of this chapter, Jesus goes from having the largest recorded crowd gather around him to losing that crowd little by little, from thousands to hundreds to tens. And by the end of the chapter where we're going to land here this morning, Jesus has 11 people left. So from thousands to 11, from over maybe like up to 20,000 down to 11 followers. Now, can you imagine that? Any of you business people or, um, you know, people that are famous on Instagram or wherever you find your followers, could you imagine losing bleeding people like this? You'd go into full-blown panic because in, in America, especially 21st century modern person, we love metrics that we can count, weigh, or measure. So success is based on quantifiable, quantifiable metrics. Bricks, bucks, and bodies. Uh, what, what we can count, weigh, or measure often and most, most of the time determines how successful we are. 
and Jesus is bleeding success right now. People are leaving him in droves because of the controversial teachings and sayings that are in this chapter. So Jesus' popularity goes extremely high to its highest high, down to perhaps at the end of this, the lowest of lows. But one thing we need to remember as those of us who are kingdom people is that spiritual fruit is different than the way that we count success outside of spirituality. Spiritual fruit, there isn't a metric that we can use to gauge spiritual fruit. Like if somebody asks me, how, how is Emmaus doing spiritually? That's a more difficult question to answer than to say, how many people go to Emmaus? How much money do you guys have in your bank? Like, what are you doing with your building? Do you have a building? When are you going to get a building? That, that's all the quantifiable stuff that someone would say, well, tell me about Emmaus, and, and mainly that's the answer. But, but if we were to dig a little bit deeper and say, but what about the spiritual weight and heft? That's a little bit harder. That's a little bit more ethereal. And the Bible, when it talks about how we weigh spiritual things, Romans chapter 14, the apostle Paul said that the kingdom of God is not a matter of food or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom is different than the metrics we use to measure success because based on John chapter six, as Jesus is heading toward the end of his life, it would look like Jesus is failing, like things aren't going well. But one thing you have to note about Jesus in his ministry is that he wasn't frequently very impressed with crowds. Like I'm impressed with crowds. I love lots of people. I love lots of money and lots of space and lots of people and lots of movement and lots of energy. I like all the bigness. But Jesus was never impressed with bigness. Mark chapter one, we're told that on Jesus, very early on in his ministry, maybe one of the first days of his ministry, he had done a tremendous work. He had gone in and he began healing all those who were sick and had diseases. He was casting out demons and, and, and lots of people were bringing their sick relatives and friends and family members and, and demon-possessed people. And Jesus was handling it in the spirit. I mean, casting demons out, healing the paralyzed and, and freeing the sick and all these amazing, miraculous things that Jesus did. And the next morning, as Jesus had ministered late into the evening, healing all these people, the next morning he rises a great while before the day. And he goes out to pray with the Father. And as he's seeking the Father's face, as the day is about to break, Peter and the disciples are up looking for Jesus because the crowds have gone wild. Jesus is popular now. He did all that great stuff and it worked. His marketing campaign worked. And so Peter excited, excitedly proclaims, Jesus, all men are looking for you. Like the thing that you're trying to start, it's happening. Like your church is growing. The movement is happening. And Jesus says, I love this phrase in Mark chapter one, Jesus, as Peter's so excited, Jesus just says, let's go somewhere else <laughs> to nearby villages so that I can preach there also. I just like that idea, like Peter's all excited about big numbers and Jesus is like, that just doesn't do it for me. I'm gonna go to these villages that haven't heard the gospel. Later in John chapter two, again, Jesus not being impressed with large numbers or lots of crowds, John chapter 2, verses 23 to 24, it says that many people saw the signs that Jesus was performing and they believed in his name. Now, this is a key statement, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. 
See, Jesus knows how public opinion goes. In one moment, they'll worship you, and the next moment, they crucify you. They want to kill you. And so Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to people because he knew what was in people. He knew the fickleness of the crowd, the indecisiveness of the crowd, the moving opinion of the sway of public opinion. And so Jesus never gets excited about large numbers. And again, to our text, John chapter 6, Jesus, having his largest recorded crowd in his ministry within one chapter, goes down to 11. Now here's the big idea that I see from John chapter 6 that I want to bring us into as we get into our text. And that is this, simply sometimes less is more. Sometimes less is more. So two big ideas to unpack from chapter 6. The first point being why people leave Jesus. Why people leave Jesus. And secondly, how Jesus wins by losing. How Jesus wins by losing. So first of all, why people left Jesus. The controversy here was over Jesus' statement down in verse 51. So let's look at this. Jesus again said, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. That's the controversy. Then the Jews, verse 52, began to argue sharply among themselves, saying, how can this man give us His flesh. Now, the controversy has begun. And this is the time when, as a Bible teacher or a spiritual leader or someone who's trying to get followers, that you actually try to explain it to make it easier for everyone to understand. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? But the ironic thing, surprising thing about Jesus is he doesn't make it easier, he makes it more difficult. So he goes to explain it by saying, oh, it's not even as easy as you think. If you're struggling at level one, I'm just going to take it up to the next level. So Jesus says perhaps one of the most controversial things that will ever come from his mouth in his teaching. Jesus said to them, verse 53, Verily I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, What is Jesus saying here? That you have to eat my body, my flesh, and drink my blood, or you can't have any part of me? I think we can immediately rule out cannibalism. Anybody here with me? Can you say amen to that? Jesus, not talking about cannibalism here. Um, Cannibalism was uh, uh, forbidden in the Mosaic Law, the drinking of blood and the eating of flesh, Leviticus 17, Deuteronomy 12, if you want to look further into that. Those of you who are prone to cannibalism, um, you might read God's law and realize that's not what we're talking about here. So we can rule that out. Although there is something very interesting. I don't know if you know this, but in the early days of the Christian movement, the Christians were actually accused of being cannibals. And the reason being because they claimed to eat the flesh and drink the blood of their founder. 
And so the early church was often looked at sort of in a leery way because of the claim that they eat and drink the flesh and blood of the one who founded the movement, Jesus the Christ. But Jesus obviously is speaking in metaphor and symbol. So he's not saying literally eat me, but he's actually saying in metaphor, receive my life and my ways. Jesus is saying essentially the way is narrow and specific unless you eat and drink of me, you can have no life in you. Jesus' main point here is, I am the only way to have eternal life. That's the controversy. The controversy is not, is he saying cannibalism? That's not the issue. The issue is he's saying, I'm the only way that you get to Father. I'm the only way that you get to life. Unless you come through me, you can't have eternal life. That's where it gets difficult for most people. The exclusivity of the claims of Jesus, the exclusivity of Christianity, that Jesus would say, I am the way to the Father. And in this text, he makes a very controversial statement by just claiming, unless you partake of me, receive my life, you can't have any part of me. You can't have part of eternal life because it's through me alone. And it's there that we find the place of controversy Look at the response of the crowd to Jesus' statements. Because again, like we're, we're purporting that Jesus isn't impressed by big numbers. He's looking for devoted true followers. The big numbers don't mean anything to Jesus. He's not against them. But they aren't a sign of success. And so if you would, Jesus is almost doing something against church growth. If Jesus was pastoring Emmaus, which I'm hoping he is in some capacities in the main capacity, but if he was physically here pastoring Emmaus, he would probably say and do things that all of us elders would say, hey, if you keep talking like that, we're gonna lose our entire church. And he'd say, bring it on. If we go down to 11 people that are real and serious, then we got, a, we got the seedbed of life. If we attract thousands and we, we lack that life, we, act peop, we lack people who are willing to eat and drink of Jesus as the exclusive way, then we're actually not accomplishing anything. And so Jesus says this, or, or Jesus says this, and then notice the reaction of the crowd, verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. A reference to Judas, which he'll make another one. Jesus knew ahead of time, even before he chose them, who would not believe and who would betray? He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. At hearing the exclusive claim of Jesus being the only way to eternal life, the crowd continued to diminish. And their first response was, now these were their, the disciples this is a hard saying. Who can hear these kind of hard words? But you have to understand this word for hard teaching 
is the Greek word skleros, S-K-L-E-R-O-S. And it means hard to accept rather than hard to understand. They knew what he was saying, but what he was saying was hard. Do you, does that make sense, Capiche? Like It's not like they're like, I, we have no idea what that guy's talking about. No, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They were saying, that's really hard to accept. That teaching is hard to accept. And in the, in the modern age, we don't like hard teaching. Because we're programmed for everything to be easy, soft, light, and encouraging. We want Christianity light. We don't want the hard teachings. Hard teachings don't grow big churches oftentimes. Jesus preaches hard words, and the crowd says, this is hard to receive. These are hard words. And the reality is you can't really follow Jesus without being honest and saying, some of the stuff that Jesus teaches is hard. And any preacher or pastor or leader or spiritual guru who's telling you that every time that you hear them talk, everything is light and fluffy, everything is awesome all the time, they're not telling you the whole truth. That is the risk of teaching the entire Bible. You open a book and you say, we're just going to teach it all. And as you look through it all, you realize some of the stuff is hard. And it's the hard teachings of Jesus that whittle down his crowd. His crowd gets smaller as the teaching gets more difficult. Because most people are into Jesus when he's Jesus the social worker. Jesus that does good for the oppressed and Jesus who loves the poor and Jesus who finds the disenfranchised and the marginalized. A lot of people, especially in this generation, Jesus is still all right with me as long as we talk Jesus the social worker. We love that. People love Jesus the miracle worker, raising the dead, healing the sick, doing miracles, signs and wonders. Give me that Jesus. I mean, that Jesus will grow churches. That Jesus will attract crowds. But let him start saying the hard things. Like, unless you receive my life, you can't have life. I'm the way to life. There is no life outside of me. Those kind of teachings whittle down a crowd. Those are the hard sayings of Jesus. No, the difficult part of this is the fact that those who left had been disciples. We're not talking about like just kind of like one of the crowd that were seeking more food from Jesus, the bread machine. He made all that bread, man. Prosperity gospel. Let's go get more bread from Jesus, the prosperity gospel, Jesus. That wasn't this group. It wasn't the religious leaders. These were those who had followed Jesus up to this point. Disciples, people who left everything, followers, serious about the kingdom. It was this hard teaching that it says many who had followed him up to this point, John 6, 6, 6, left him to follow him no more after this. Because the teachings got hard, because the way got more narrow, Jesus lost disciples, people that had followed him for a long time. I don't know how long you maybe have been a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're new to the Lord. Maybe you grew up in the church. But one of the most difficult things I found in walking with Jesus over almost, well, over... 20 years now, one of the most difficult parts of following Jesus is the fact that over time you realize that not everybody is going to follow him forever. Some people leave Jesus. And if you've tracked with people for a while, 
you note that sometimes people bail on Jesus. When, especially when things get hard, either in their lives or with the teachings and way of Jesus. I've, I've experienced it in my life, and uh, some of the most heartbreaking things about being a follower of Jesus is the fact that some people leave him. I had a good friend who shares my name, uh, who I was in high school with, and he and I began to follow Jesus around the same time. We are both water baptized together. I mean, literally, like, our friend baptized us in a river together, filled with the Holy Spirit, um, started out in ministry in high school, rocking our high school for Jesus. Um, he and I were like bros. He was the blonde version of the Brian. Um, and it was he and I, uh, and he and I went into ministry school together. And he, to be honest, he was a better Christian than I was. He was more passionate about Jesus more devote in the scriptures, more disciplined in every way. He just was that guy that, as I ran with him, I thought, man, you're just better at doing this than I am. And, uh, and he did all the right things. He went to ministry school after ministry school. He married a nice Christian girl. And then things started going bad for him. Uh, he didn't make it too long in the marriage and ended up getting divorced. And then within that time frame, both of his parents died of cancer. And so um, he was sort of left dealing with a divorce, which is a death in and of itself for those of you who've been through that painful uh, process of divorce. And then actually losing both his mom and dad. So those who would comfort him in the loss of his marriage. And then his business went belly up and he had to file bankruptcy. And uh, then he got remarried and, and, and things started to look hopeful again. That marriage failed. And... Uh, Essentially, he left Jesus. Um, I mean, I think to this day he's a functional atheist, or he would claim to to, to maybe be agnostic or whatever. Um, and I don't know everything that went into that decision, but I can guess he did all the right things that Christian boys are supposed to do. He didn't have sex before he got married. He read his Bible. He was very disciplined. He married a Christian. He saved himself for her. Um, he did all the right things, checked all the right boxes, tried to do a business with integrity, and still things got hard. And he walked away. He just, it, it was too much, too hard. And, and the question that, that, you know, that arises in my heart when I experience this with people that are in my life and also when I read this, that many who had followed Jesus up to that point, things got too hard and they said, I'm out. I'm out. I can't follow this Jesus any longer. This is too hard. Who can, who can deal with the hardness of the teachings of Jesus or the way of Jesus? The way of Jesus is not easy. You know, what do we say about that when we see people walk away? Well, there's only one of two options. Either they'll be back or they won't. I mean, I, don't, I hate to reduce it to that form of simplicity. My hope and belief in prayer is that I have a kind of father who runs after people when they leave. That's, that is, now, I don't know how it's all going to shake out. But, I, but I, I have this sense in me that Jesus pursues those who leave him but I don't know who's coming back or not. And that isn't within, I'm not the judge and jury over that. I don't have to declare over my friend whether he's in or out. I don't know. He may just be going through a hard time and the hard teachings of Jesus and the hard way of Jesus, he just couldn't handle it for a while. 
And either he'll be back or he won't be back, but that's up to the Father who pursues us. I believe we have a Father who pursues us. Amen? The clearest statement, though, I can find to unsettle myself or settle myself, whatever you want to say, um, is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. The same author, John, maybe even thinking about that day when he saw the disciples that had followed Jesus up to that point. Can you imagine being one of the 12 and having the 70, maybe it was the 70, but there was a, a larger number of disciples that had all been kind of following Jesus and in one teaching, in one moment, to watch like over half of them just go, I'm out. And just one by one walking away from Jesus. And, and we're told in our text, verse 66, that from this time they turned back and no longer followed him. I can't imagine being John. Well, John, maybe in thinking back to this or his pastoral experience and watching people come and go, said this, they went out from us, those who walk away, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, that, the great thing about this is that is not my decision to make. All I can say is that if people belong to Jesus, they can't ever really leave. And you and I might see somebody, and it looks like they left Jesus, but you know what I say oftentimes, especially when I really feel like that brother or that sister really has a new heart Jesus gave them, I just go, they'll be back. They'll be back. I don't know in what form or in what way, but they'll be back. They will return the true sons and daughters always return home. And for those I don't know, I just go, I don't know. But if they leave and, they, and if, if a person can stay gone from Jesus, then as John says, they went out from us because they never really belonged to us. They were never really serious or changed or new natured. Now that's not my judgment call. Everybody gets the same amount of time as I get. You get a lifetime. I don't know how long your life's going to be. I might die next year, but I get, I get 40 years. At least at this point, I can say indefinitely, I get 40 years. Everybody gets their entire life to prove this out, whether or not you're going to stay with Jesus or not, whether or not when things get hard, you're bailing. Because when it gets hard, things get real. And that, that is why I, I think the prosperity gospel is so offensive on many levels because I think it doesn't assault to the person of the, and nature of God that we come to God to get, to get, to get. But I think also it doesn't fairly prepare people for difficult times because it essentially says that you're always to be blessed and you're always gonna be healthy and you're always gonna be wealthy and you're always gonna have everything you want. And I go, I beg to differ because I have Jesus and Paul and all of those who followed him who died radically difficult deaths, who were, were impoverished and had lots of difficulty. The way of Jesus is not the easiest way. If you don't want to follow Jesus, there are way easier ways to live your life. Don't sign up to follow Jesus because this is the easiest path you can take. It's life, it's true, it's right, but I'm trying to sell you something. The way of Jesus can be very difficult but I take comfort in just knowing this. It is not our decision to make when it appears that somebody leaves Jesus to decide whether or not they're gone and lost forever. I don't know that. I, I believe that Jesus teaches, he's the kind of shepherd 
that will leave the 99, if he has 100 in his flock, to go get one who gets lost. I believe Jesus pursues lost people, lost things. He's got a passion for lostness. He actually taught three parables in a row about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son to say, I love lost things. And a lost thing doesn't have to do anything but get lost, and I'll find it. Jesus finds lost things, but people also can choose to leave Jesus. And that's what happens here. So first of all, we look at why people leave Jesus. But the second thing, and this gets a little bit more encouraging, um, is how Jesus wins by losing. Because this chapter sort of ends really sad. It looks like Jesus is losing. Now, anytime you think Jesus is losing, you're wrong because Jesus wins. But Jesus here is losing followers. He's losing momentum. He's losing his audience. And he initiates a more difficult side to this um, to potentially lose more. Look at verse 67. So he's just lost thousands of people. He's had disciples leave. And then he turns to the few who are left. You imagine a maze clears out. No one wants to be here anymore. There's like three people sitting in front of me on a Sunday morning. And then I say this, verse 67, this is what Jesus says. Do you want to leave too? (laughs) Jesus asked the 12. And then Simon Peter answers, he gives the right answer when things get hard in life. This is what you say when you don't understand the way of Jesus. When you don't understand uh, why life has gotten so hard, how to understand some of the hard teachings. You say what Peter said. Simon Peter answered, Lord, you're inviting us to go, but to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Sometimes Peter says the right thing. Now, we're always down on him because he says the wrong thing a lot, but sometimes when he nails it, he nails it. And right here, he nails it. Good, well done, Peter. Just like that day you declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, Matthew 16. Right here, you nailed it. Jesus looks at the very few who are left and said, are you gonna go too? Is my way too hard for you? And Peter says, Like everyone else, we're confused, but where else are we going to go? We don't have anyone else. You have the words of life. And even when it gets hard and my back gets pushed up against a wall, a true follower of Jesus will say, even through tears and pain and difficulty and misunderstanding, I've got nowhere else to go. Jesus, you have the words of life. And we have come to believe that you're the Savior. We've come to believe you're the Holy One of God. We've got nowhere else to go, even when life is difficult. So Jesus is left alone with what I'm calling the loyal 11. Now, there are 12, but one of them doesn't work out so well. Uh, Verse 70, Jesus referred to this uh, a little bit up from here, but, but then he point blank says, Jesus replied, there's 12 people sitting in front of him. This is awkward. I mean, everything in this chapter has been hard. People are leaving, offended. Religious leaders are angry. People that had followed him for a long time are walking away. Then Jesus says to the ones who are left, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. I'm not gonna tell you which one, but one of you, but there's only 12 of you. One of you is a devil. And he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the 12 was later to betray him. So, I mean, this looks like the devil's winning. 
Jesus is with his inner circle and he's saying, I know that even among this small group, one of you is a devil and you're going to betray me. But despite what it might look like, we have to know this, Jesus is in control here. Because he says, I chose each one of you and I knew when I was choosing Judas that he would do what he did. This is all going according to the plan that Jesus has set forth. He was going to win, but it looks like he's losing. You know, even when it looks like you're losing, Jesus is losing, it's never what it seems like. As that great theologian John Lennon once wrote, (laughs) everything will be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. And Jesus, everything that was happening was going according to plan. He had the devil by the scruff of the neck. But that's the thing about the devil. He's not all-knowing. You know, in one place Paul said, had the rulers of this age known the outcome of crucifying Jesus, they would have never crucified the Lord of glory. They thought they were winning. The devil thinks he's winning. You lost all your followers. Even those who were devoted have left you. And now one of your inner circle, your inner 12 is about to leave. And Jesus says, it's all going according to plan. I'm winning but it looks like I'm losing. Because Jesus doesn't need a lot of people to do a lot of things. Didn't he already prove that at the beginning? He's like, look at all these people. I'll feed them all. Little boy, come here. Give me your lunch. Everyone gets fed. Jesus doesn't need a lot to to accomplish many things. He can take what is small and insignificant and do great things with it. So Jesus is whittling down his group to say, it's you 11 that I'm gonna start my revolution with. And so the two takeaways for this morning that that I want to leave you with is the first one, maybe the most obvious, Jesus has it all under control. I just want to say that to some of you here who maybe feel like your life is spinning out of control. No matter what it looks like, Jesus has got this under control. Things that are out of your control are in his control. He's going to accomplish the purpose that he intends. And this is not just wishful wishful thinking. Jesus is in control of the ends as well as the means. That is, how you get to where he wants you to get and where you get, that's all under the authority of Jesus. So so there's never a time when he's not in control. He never loses control, even when it feels that way. So that's number one. Jesus has it all under control. Number two, sometimes less is more. And Jesus, as we've seen, he keeps diminishing his numbers down to the 11, but he's going to use those 11 in a way that the world will never be the same. Martin Luther put it this way, of whom shall I be afraid? One with God is a majority. So you know what Jesus is doing? He's bringing the numbers down so that everyone can see that it is him and not them that it is not by the many but by the few that Jesus is going to get all the glory. He's removing all room for boasting. So whatever is going on in my life or your life that's difficult and it appears like you're losing rather than winning, just remember this, that sometimes Jesus brings things to a place where you think, 
It seems like I'm losing. Things are spinning out of control. This isn't going the direction it should. Jesus is saying, it's because if it were to your advantage, you would take credit. I'm removing your room for boasting. And so Psalm 124 says it this way. If the Lord had not been on our side, this is what every Christian must be able to say when God is reducing you. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say we would have been swallowed alive. The flood would have uh, taken us away, engulfed us, and raging waters would have swept us away. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker in heaven, of heaven and earth. If it had not been for the Lord, the flames and the floods would have taken me away. That's what a true Christian says. It's not because I was smart or pretty or rich or whatever or strong. It was because of the Lord. And if you're right now crediting yourself for your success, then you are misguided. And sometimes God will take someone like that and whittle down your numbers to the place where you'll be able to only cry out one thing, had it not been for the Lord. Our backs were against the wall. We didn't see how we were getting out of this. This got tough. And had it not been for the Lord, we would have been entirely swept away. I can take no credit for this. In the book of Judges chapter 7, you, you remember this story if you grew up in church, but there's this dude named Gideon. Anybody remember a guy named Gideon? And uh, his story is famous for one reason mainly, and that is he started off with the odds stacked against him and God whittled down his numbers and the odds were even more against him. He was facing like over 100,000 Midianites and he had 32,000 men with him at the beginning. But just like John chapter six, God kept whittling down his numbers until Gideon defeats over 100,000 men with 300. He goes from 32,000 to 300 the odds are stacked against him. And God tells Gideon why he's doing this. This is important. He said, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands. Or Israel would boast against me, saying, my own strength has saved me. God understands the natural direction of the human heart towards taking credit for stuff that he does. And he says, I had to do it this way and shrink your numbers because Israel would boast and say it was our strength and not the Lord's. And the Lord's saying, I, I cannot allow you to boast. So God removes all room for human boasting. I want to just finish by reading the words of the Apostle Paul as he talks about the church and sort of the irony of how God uses so little to do so much, how he takes 11 and changes the world, how he takes a little boy's lunch and feeds multiple thousands, how he takes what looks like a loss and makes it a win. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. So we're talking about the Corinthian church here, and he's kinda, it's kind of insulting you guys weren't that awesome. Not many of you were wise by human standards. So God didn't pick the smartest. Not many of you were influential. You weren't even popular. Not many of you were noble, of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
Now, you don't think of wise people and strong people getting shamed by weak people and foolish people, but God says, in the kingdom, I'm going to pick the ones who look like the losers, the ones who weren't the most influential, the ones who seem like to be the bottom of society, and I am going to use them to do something that those who are proud of their own wisdom and their own strength will be put to shame. Because if there's anything God hates, it's pride. God chose the lowly things, verse 28, of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. God doesn't like boasters. So He does things so that all room for boasting and pride would be removed It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Jesus is the hero. Therefore it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now that's what I'm talking about, church. That's what I'm talking about, brothers and sisters. We have no room to boast in and of ourselves. And if we are boasting in and of our wisdom and our strength, then God says, I will take the weak and the foolish and shame you by them. I'm just not into that. But here's what you can do. When you see that Jesus is the hero of the story, he's the one that takes the small and makes it great, to, takes very little and makes much of it, then let him that boasts. If you've got a boasting personality, boast in the Lord. We gotta learn how to brag on God, y'all. Some of, you, some of you are so humble that you never talk about yourself. You never talk about anything. You've got to learn how to boast in God, though. Because there's one area in our life that we should all be boastful, and it's in the Lord. To be able to say, look at what God can do. And, and Paul said, God strategically chose who he chose to work through who he chose to work through so that all room for pride and arrogance would be taken away and that when I use the weak and the foolish that the world would say and that you would be able to say, look at what the Lord has done. Let Israel say, had it not been for the Lord, we would have been washed away. The fire would have taken us. The flood would have taken us. Had it not been for the Lord, we would have been in ruin. But our help is in the name of the Lord. He is the one who saves us. And so in your own personal journey, When you look at a chapter like chapter 6 of John and you see that it looks like things are going down, that's that's just the way it goes for those of us who follow Jesus sometimes. That Jesus is saying, I'm gonna turn this thing around. But I'm not impressed with large numbers if those large numbers aren't devoted followers. So he whittles it down to say, I'll take this few and I'm gonna do great things. Jesus is in control. Jesus sometimes can take what looked like amazing and whittle it down to what looks like a loss and say, now watch. And it's at that point where you get so low, you think, God, how are you going to work through this? God says, well, we've only just begun. We finally gathered our team. You 11 weirdos. You 11 losers. You 11 non-influential, non-wise, foolish thing of the world. I'll work with you 11. The Bible says, who's despised the day of small things? We all have to raise our hand and say, me. When things don't look good, I just assume failure is looming. There's not enough money in the bank. There's not enough energy behind this. God is not helping me. And God says, just watch. 
Just watch. When you get real low and you get back to brass tacks and you say like Peter, when Jesus says, so, so things have gotten really hard now, haven't they? In your family, in your marriage, with your kids, at your job. Things have gotten really hard in your church, in your spiritual life. My teachings have gotten really hard. So are you going to leave me? Is this the point where we part? It looks like a lot of people are. And then you, you like Peter, have this rising faith in your heart, and you say, Lord, I don't, I don't understand. But where else am I going to go? I, all my chips are with you. I, I mean, I'm all in. I got no, nowhere else to go. I burn my plan B. So I'm with you. And I believe you're the only one with life. You all, you're the only one I've ever heard of that when you speak, life comes out. So therefore, I'm with you to the end because I believe you're the Son of God. May that just be the resolve that's in our hearts that we're the kind of men and women that would say, Jesus, I'm all in with you. Sometimes less is more. It doesn't take much for God to do a lot, right? I mean, he's God. He started with nada but himself. So all, God all by himself can do a lot. When the world was nothing, he said, let there be and there was. So he can start with small things and do great things. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, we believe as Peter that though things become difficult and hard and confusing sometimes, we really don't have anyone else to go to because we do believe your words. And I, I pray for any here who are struggling with the hard ways of Jesus, the hard things of life. That when the roads get tough and the teachings and sayings of Jesus don't always seem so light, fluffy, and easy, that God, we would resolve, like Peter, that we're with you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, especially those who have come up against some hard things, that Father, that you would put a resolve in each of us. We can trust you that even when it feels like we've bottomed out, you can work from that place. It doesn't take much for you to turn things around. You can rebuild what has been torn down. You can restore what has been stolen. And God, we pray for the church in the United States where there are in some places large crowds. God, we, we rejoice that anyone is hearing the gospel. But we also recognize that, God, not everybody in a big old crowd is actually going to stick around when things get hard. And God, I would just thank you ahead of time that the men and women that are, are here this morning are those who I'm praying and hoping are like the 11, who would stick it out to the very end, who would trust you to the very end, even when it gets tough. So as we worship you and receive your goodness this morning, we just trust that we found the way in Jesus Christ and that you're going to take us all the way to victory. You're going to redeem and restore and renew. So I pray that today we would find hope in that, that we would find our trust renewed in you. In Jesus' name.